Uh, so well, you're back with us on About Buildings and Cities. I'm Luke Jones. He's George Gingell. I'm George Gingell. Yes. Uh, Who are you? I'm Luke Jones. Who are we? We're a podcast. And together a, we are. A podcast called About Buildings and Cities. And we just recorded like quite a while without having the recorder on. It's definitely on now, yeah. Luke was telling me all about Brian Eno. I, we would, we've, we've gone all over this again. I'm going to have to try and remember to do it again. But we're not going to talk about exclusively about Brian Eno, although strangely he is the most quoted source in this particular literary yeah. work, which is called How Buildings Learn. Now, are you going to tell me about the book and how, who wrote it how building, more particularly? How Buildings Learn, what happens, to the, what happens after they're built is a book by Stuart Brand. When did it come out? It came out in the early 90s, about 1994 in this country and possibly a year before in the United States. Stuart Brand, principally known for the Whole Earth Catalogue, which we've just immediately a minute ago completely described and then we're going to have to do it all over <laughs> For again. about 10 minutes. That's okay, yeah. How Buildings Learn is a book which is about buildings in time. It's about what happens to buildings as they are lived occupied. in, occupied, used, and the ways in which they develop. And it's kind of a polemic against what Brand sees as a habit of principally architects fixing buildings in a kind of perfect and unchanging state at the moment that they're, they're designed and built. And then, well, and not really allowing for a process of evolution and growth, or as he terms it, flow. That's sort of one thing it's about. Although I would say, in fact, it is a book without a polemic. Yeah. Well, the, it has an attitude. Yeah. And I, that is one of the that's what, pillars of the attitude. This is what it's taken to be about. So we should say, because I said it once before, that uh, the way we review books is to talk about the whole book and all the things which are said in the book. Uh, which is often like somewhat at odds with what the book is sort of taken to be about, like the particular uh, kind of place it occupies in this constellation of references that because people I've have. Because I've only read the book, you might have to tell me what the popular conception is. Well, the, it, I mean, I think it's not like totally off. It's it's identified with an increasing interest in sort of post-occupancy studies in thinking about and being interested in maintenance in designing for what they call loose fit so these were these were definitely ideas that were being banged around when we were studying architecture yeah absolutely uh i think he like at the very least he identifies a bunch of issues that were going to go on to be quite fashionable i think the book is like a not all that effective explanation of some quite interesting ideas (laughs) (laughs) you might be on something there yeah Okay, so to say something about Brand, if you don't know him, Whole Earth Catalogue was what made him famous. It's the reason why Brian Eno is his friend and uh, features so much in the book, presumably. Made Brian him, Eno like, features so much, and I couldn't work out why yeah. Brian Eno was in it, that I went to the trouble of Googling to see if there was another Brian Eno who was an architect, mm. or in some way related to building design, and no, it is Brian Eno. It's the same Brian Eno, of, yeah. of like Roxy Music and subsequent solo career. Yeah, music for airports. So, yeah, Whole Earth Catalogue is this sort of strange... It's considered to be, like, a, an extremely influential moment in the kind of emerging culture of the West Coast, of, like, the Californian ideology. There are all kinds of people who then who go on to 
be extremely influential and do big things. Your kind of Steve Jobses and Kevin Kellys. So yeah, Whole Earth Catalogue was like a catalogue. It's like a kind of almanac, I would say, is really the form. It, it was a, a kind of self-produced periodical done with kind of classic like cut and paste printing and production. And it's full of, the, essentially like the rule for what gets included is like anything that was anything that was interesting anything that was cool anything that was kind of aligned with the vibe there's a quote from the page of the first like a classically sort of grandiose quote where brand says we are as gods and might as well get good at it kind of historically power he says had been in the hands of government big business formal education and the church but now a realm of intimate personal power is developing power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Tools that aid this process are sought and promoted by the Whole Earth Catalogue. And in the context of the catalogue that might include everything from like, um, uh, like places where you can buy a mobile sawmill to instructions on how to make geodesic domes and other, other like experimental structures. Lots and lots of apparently quite kind of random stuff. It strikes me as like one in the genre of like really aspirational magazines, like yeah. Monocle or something. Except uh, or like Condé Nast Traveler. It's kind of like instead yeah. of being like a really rich uh, old money person or or like an international. Uh, yeah, but for, bastard, for like the Manson family, you're going to like. be well, <laughs> possibly, but certainly for like um, certainly for a kind of hippie Superman. He's yeah. going to, you know, build a space elevator in his back garden. It's kind of the dream, yeah. Like, I think that they spent quite a lot of time, like, rolling around in a um, sort of camper van selling these things to people. I think more, uh, it's more like being McAfee, the, like... Yeah, living the John McAfee life. Living the John McAfee life, yeah. uh, sort of... Um, well, he had kind of lived that life. So he, he was part of um, Ken Casey's, like, big acid-swilling gang who used to sort of roll around... They were called the Merry Pranksters, and they used to roll around in a... I bet they were great fun to know. Uh, I think they probably were fun to be I in uh, the gang, maybe. They yeah. <laughs> so he, he literally like appears in Tom Wolfe's um, book about them. He crops up in all kinds of things. His Wikipedia page has got a lot of random stuff where you think, well, I wonder how that happened. Like, he was also... He was literally, like, technical assistant for a famous... Um, tech demo called the mother of all demos in which is in that's the in xerox that's the with the mouse the where they did the mouse yeah the hands the something mouse else under, i'm not sure it was at xerox actually i think that the lot of people went from there went to xerox but yeah it's the first like mouse window graphical user interface demo he wasn't involved in that particularly but for some reason he was kind of helping with the presentation he's a he's a mother of all demos groupie i don't know like whole earth catalog i find is very weird it feels like it has a, a sort of enormous cultural surface area still but now does anyone actually like go back and look at what's actually in it as as i as we said in the bit that we lost due to yeah. technical difficulties yeah that's true of every single book that we cover mm. no one reads them often because they're badly written and boring but we might well read it for a bonus episode <laughs> it looks actually like there's a lot of pictures for the amount of um words which is something i greatly appreciate yeah work of architectural theory yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not really a work of architectural theory. I don't know what it is, but it is something like there's a famous graduation address that Steve Jobs gave, which is a kind of condensed distillation of like Jobsiana, Jobsismo, 
he talks about this for ages in this as like the inspiration that crystallized what he wanted to do and the what he wanted to do with the personal computer and all this sort of thing. The term personal computer actually is attributed to Stuart Brand. It's a brand coinage, apparently. There we go. So that's uh, clearly a very important person. Yeah, a great it's intellect. A so, what do you think in his later life he did with <laughs> um, architectural occupancy studies? Well, yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? So this is this is like some way after the heyday, after after Whole Earth Catalogue, he then set up a kind of early web sort of portal forum thing called the Well. But he also seems to have been doing quite a lot of consulting because he talks about fitting out the office for his consultancy, which has a strange name. Like It's called, like, Global... Consultancy, that's what you do when your career's failed, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's what you do when you don't want to work all the time, oh, isn't it? That's true, yeah. <laughs> when you want to just uh, clock in and do a little bit. It's a, which has a funny business. It's called, like, Global Business Partners or something like that. <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll come to that later because he does talk about it in the book. But to return to the subject at hand, How Buildings Learn is uh, a book about architecture, which he'd not previously written all that much about. Oh, do you think it tells ever? Um, well, in the TV show, he says, I spent six years working on this problem because I was so vexed by why buildings were so bad. And this is my answer. And I think it's kind of worth unpicking. Let's have a go. So the basically it's got a nice format. It's very wide. Yeah, it's Isn't a kind it? of similar format to the Stuttgart Institute of Lightweight Technology books. Yeah, but not quite as a four A four landscape. Yeah, sort of A four ish landscape, isn't it? It's nice. I'm just going to do a little uh, a little quote from the book because he very helpfully says what the argument is. He has a quote which begins: "The argument is as follows: Buildings are layered in different rates of change." Chapter two. Adaptation is easiest in cheap buildings that no one cares about, chapter 3, and most refined in long-lasting, sustained purpose buildings, chapter 4. Adaptation, however, is anathema to architects and most of the building professions, chapter 5, and the gyrations of real estate markets sever continuity in buildings, chapter 6. The building preservation movement arose in rebellion, deliberately frustrating creative architects and the free market in order to restore continuity, chapter 7. Focus on preservation brought a new focus on maintenance, chapter 8, and respect for humble older buildings brought investigation of their design wisdom by vernacular building historians, chapter 9. The same kind of investigation can be made of the persistent change, mostly amateur, that occurs in contemporary houses, chapter 10. With that perspective back, it's possible to rethink perspective forward, chapter 11, and to imagine designing buildings that invite adaptation chapter 12 and that's the end i guess we'll begin at the beginning i think so yeah that makes sense his big sort of theory is about this idea of flow so that buildings change over their lives that they that they learn by being adapted and physically transformed by their users or occupiers or people with a right to interfere in them in some way the kind of early parts of the book contain quite a lot of like sort of photographic documentation of different examples of this happening in different ways but he has a kind of theorization of how change works which is this idea of shearing layers uh, this is the big sort of theoretical it's the big sort of theory bit basically of the book it has a diagram um, and the idea is that 
we need to think about how different bits of buildings, different layers of stuff, change at different rates. And he has these six layers, the outermost of which... Which he actually gets from something else, right? Except yeah, he adds this one... He adds sight to it. He adds, a he, adds a, and he adds another one as well, and yeah. And stuff. So th and this is an adaptation of an idea that he gets from one of his uh, major interlocutors, who's a otherwise not very well-known British architect called Frank Duffy, and uh, who's quoted extensively in the book. I mean, one of the things in the book is that he gives like extensive verbatim quotations from people, which gives it like quite a strange... Like Brian Eno and the Duchess of Devonshire. And the Duchess of Devonshire, yeah, his, his twin stars. Um, so the six layers are, on the outside, skin, which is... And in the diagram, they've all got different thicknesses, which indicate how permanent they are, how often they change. So skin, the outermost layer, which is like not that thick but thicker than a lot of the others Stru well sight is the outermost layer well sight is the bottom layer yeah okay sight doesn't change doesn't change skin changes quite a bit structure doesn't really change that's the thickest of the kind of building layers and then you've got services space plan and stuff and stuff at space plan are both very fine lines they change all the time services change quite a bit skin changes a bit more than that structure changes least of all of all the layers of the building and then sight is this kind of permanent thing and he has various little photographic studies of different buildings which explore these different things so he has like this study of i think it's originally a u.s army hospital or something the soldier's home in washington dc yes which is a 19th century building which kind of um, has a, a sort of original layout with verandas and a fairly stubby tower and then later the tower gets bigger and then later the tower gets even grander and bits kind of get the facade sort of comes out and this kind of thing. He has a study of a building called the Cliff House in San Francisco, which has like... Yeah, that's a really funny example of how buildings adapt because it's a building which is destroyed... Well, like the, po yeah, no, well the, the, the point the of that one is is that the building like gets completely destroyed multiple times but the site is still the same site so it's kind of demonstrating that particular layer of the like temporal diagram and then he does also have a sort of he also makes the point that generally the the different types of buildings change at different rates as well so that broadly like institutional buildings tend to have a longer life and commercial and um, uh, residential buildings tend to have a, a sort of shorter one or certainly a more mutable one that's the basic sort of theory of of change certainly in the first chapter yeah because in a way something we'll no notice in the book is that there's a series of chapters and they feel like essays where he's exploring an idea yeah usually there'll be a number of examples yeah which are kind of kind of type examples like this is a type i'm gonna like talk about this as a sort of example there'll be some sort of notion of what's linking them yeah. And I would not say in the book, although he has got that kind of summation at the beginning of like what each of these stages is going to say, it isn't a work which progresses one foot in front of the other towards a kind of logical conclusion. It's like a series of essays. Yeah. And between them, in a way, I wouldn't say like that diagram of, you know, skin and services and stuff isn't used in a kind of consistent way to explore things it's just brought up once as a kind of framing yeah. structure and yeah. then in a way he talks about things differently 
in different a... stages. And it's kind of like that. Like, that's what the work is kind of like. Yeah. So the first, like, three or four chapters of the book lay out his theory of how buildings change and then also, like, how certain types of, types of buildings change successfully. And he has these two categories of buildings that, like, handle change or handle time successfully, kind of internalize, successfully sort of internalize and, and kind of organically manage uh, this sense of, of, of kind of time and its various kind of, uh, you know, U-turns and um, depredations and so on. And those are like the low road and the high road building, how it categorizes them. And the classic low road building is this building on the MIT campus called Building 20. He's not the first person to sort of celebrate this building. There had already been a kind of exhibition about it by the time he wrote about it. And uh, it seems to come up repeatedly. It was uh, a building built during the war very cheaply. It's a sort of big plan shaped a bit like that letter E uh, with sort of various wings. Uh, it's sort of timber framed three story building with sash windows. Uh, I think I've got a picture of it a bit closer in and I think kind of weatherboarding. But it has this sort of myth attached to it because lots and lots of interesting things happened in it and lots and lots of people, I mean, MIT is obviously like a, like a hugely prestigious private research university in the one of the kind of intellectual like hotspots of the United States, the most powerful country in the world. And so lots of interesting people end up there and then and lots of people by some sort of quirk also ended up in uh, in Building 20, so there are various kinds of, like, I don't really know any science, so I wasn't really able to understand the significance of a lot of the things that they were talking about. The, like, some things to do with radiation or something. Do you look into it? I haven't looked into what. Um, no. it, was set, it was set up for uh, for radar research. Yeah, they did all kinds of stuff there, and they were. it's always been, it's a very rough and ready building. They were able to kind of set up a sort of weird temporary, like, thing on the roof to do various bits of research um, but it's also been a site of various kind of, certainly in the story of like various very successful bits of like interdisciplinary work also of kind of mixing of people between various disciplines like Chomsky was also in this building for some reason it's knocked down now it seems like it was uh, the windows didn't fit properly into the walls and it didn't really have any kind of thermal control but it was nevertheless like very appreciated it seems by its staff it's a bit hard to understand like his photos yeah. are very unclear because they're black and white and quite small the ones which they have on wikipedia are like they don't look great it's all so hard what to... does he say is good about it or i could say what he says is good about it which yeah. is that he says it's good because you're allowed to do whatever you want with it yeah it's a bit like you know a bunch of students rent a house before it's scheduled to be demolished and you can have uh, parties where you sort of slowly render your home. Yeah. Um, you can cut a hole in the wall. Yeah. Inhabitable. Yeah, it's a bit. You know. And it's kind of like that. It's like you could sort of you could do anything, and people sometimes wanted to do all kinds of things as for, you know, for the like, work that they were like doing. Like what? Like cut a hole in a wall, or cut a hole in the floor, or I mean, one quite seldom wants to do that sort of thing, but. I mean, I mean, putting I mean, a hole in a wall is actually something you can do in, in most buildings most of the time. Uh, yeah, but we're kind of skipping to the end here. But like, I think that one of the main, one of the like many things which is sort of conflated or uncertain in uh, the way Brand talks about things is like the difference between the actual building as like a constructed fact 
and the like regime of facilities management under which it's run. And the things which are stopping you from putting a hole in the wall are generally that it's a prestige piece of architecture that the facilities people don't want you to put a hole in the wall of. No, often it's because someone owns that wall and yeah. it's not you. It's and it's you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to knock it down. Yeah, because someone's. It's that someone's wall. I think that the re like this in this building because they were always actually about to knock it down from I don't know like the sixties onwards. People could do. I mean, whatever it does look to be honest a bit horrible. It doesn't look great in the photos. I'm sort of struggle a little bit to quite get the vibe that he's talking about. Um, I think in a way he might be conflating the fact that it's like this building that all this fantastic work has been done in. I would imagine one of, I mean, even though it's a Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I would imagine that like some of this stuff wasn't as prestigious when it was going on. Mm. Or maybe it was. I don't, I, the, there's a difficulty in this book in the two thirds to three quarters of the examples are set obviously in America and deal with American built culture and yeah. i just don't really i find it much more difficult to call bullshit on it yeah i suspect i might be finding the stuff more insightful if i knew that although i have a suspicion i might be finding some things less insightful yeah uh if i knew more about that yeah because i do know about some of the examples which are in the uk which yeah. is the other the, the examples in this book are from two countries yeah the united states of america and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, although it's really just the south of England. There's one building in Paris. There's one building in Paris, yeah. Which we'll get to. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently he knew, he either knew this building or knew lots of people who knew it and liked it. But anyway, that's that's what a low road building is. Or he, he But he has a couple of other examples, yeah. which I think are, are kind of possible oh, yeah. to talk about. For example, he talks about his wife has a... Um, Yes, Patty, Patty Phelan. Catalogue retailer business. Selling uh, equestrian supplies. Yeah. R very successfully, actually, by the sounds of things. Yeah, well, certainly, he's very proud of her in yeah. any case. Uh, particularly how much money she makes. Yeah. Uh, which well, is quite it's a lot, of, a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it is in in a industrial building, yeah. which is a sort of... It's a classic like light industrial building with looks like a big space downstairs and a, a kind of office type space upstairs. Yeah, I think originally it was probably like, you know, a, a double height kind of set of large industrial rooms and then they put a floor in. Yeah. Um, and he says that this kind of industrial warehouse space, which was converted from shipbuilding, is quite good um, to warehouse a catalogue retailer. Yeah, I kind of like this little study. He would he would apparently go there every every day or every week and take a photo at a prescribed time. Later in the book, he has even more photos of uh, yeah how everything kind of develops, everything moves around, and he keeps going back to it because in the TV program in the in the late nineties, yeah, he's gone back, and it's another. There's been a succession of um, other businesses there of other catalogue retailers in this space. There was a catalogue retailer, which is the occupier when he produces the book, which is making uh, the successor company was selling merchandise associated with the Doonesbury cartoon. Yes, that's good. Yeah, I, was, I just couldn't remember yeah. if it was Doonesbury or like the far side or something. Yeah, like. yeah. Anyway, and then the next one is a uh, children's toys. Uh, and he, he's like, the, the guy from the children's toys place is like, no one could ever like do, like, like make, like blow bubbles in, in, a, in a more stuffy sort of building. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. 
which he does while he's blowing bubbles to demonstrate his um, okay. bubble blowing apparatus. Okay, cool. Basically, what happens in this space is it's it's initially very stripped back, and his wife's company kind of installed a, a mezzanine level for admin, and uh, put in some more lights. I think. Yeah, some more lights, some more electrics. Very like. And they I think they, they seem to keep moving a subdivision, around. or they put in a sub. I think they put in a they put in a division. So there's two rooms downstairs as well. And then the next occupier takes out the partition but keeps the mezzanine level. And I think he's pointing out that in this building, the landlord doesn't mind if you put in a mezzanine level, sort of thing. Yeah, the landlord hasn't objected to significant works being undertaken. Although he doesn't really get into what the relationship with the landlord is in that like are these works undertaken with permission the implication is kind of that like the owner of the building doesn't mind doesn't they do, maybe doesn't even know mm. if you're um putting in a new floor or something and that's the key like thing with low road in essence he sort of just says these buildings are cheap so people don't care what you do yeah and that's good because it allows the occupier to adapt it to their needs yeah or another way is that the building is cheap and it has the most basic level of amenity yeah and almost anything you do will increase that amenity or at least yeah. be kind of neutral and so you can do what you want yeah and you've brought up a few other he has two more examples from his own life yeah he has um, his, his um his actual like research uh, library and place where the book was put together which is a shipping container Yep, and the things that he's done to the shipping container is that he's built two sort of like uh, desk height uh, uh, like benches running along the thing. The workers are think there's some storage. He's put in electric light and he like paints the roof with reflective paint, which he says deals with the problem of it being too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. Mm. Which I don't, I mean, that bit, I don't believe at all. But, that sounds but, complete. <laughs> I like, like, I, uh, I will not, there is, there is nothing you can paint it with which will stop a metal, a metal box from absorbing a huge amount of radiant heat on a sunny day. Yeah, also, no, it doesn't is, have any until, anyway. There is no magic paint that will do that. But it does look like a really beautiful little library. Like, it, this is a very seductive image for me with him, with all of everything pinned up. Every, it's the luxury of having all of this space. And this space is, you know, kind of an extension of his process, his mind. It's a way to sort of think through everything. And he says, uh, you know, it works great. He can adapt it the way he wants. He doesn't need windows. Like with modest adaptation, it can be like very commodious. Yeah, sure. I can believe all that. That's How, for me, he doesn't really provide evidence for why it's better than a shed. Uh, don't know. No, I think a shed would, a shed would be better probably. Well, maybe you could have, yeah. I think a shed would be better. It'd yeah. be made of wood. It would its lifespan would easily be spec to this. It would have better environmental performance, and it would have windows. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I guess uh, a shipping container is a bit more rhetorical. It is more rhetorical. I mean, One would think the examples he has chosen are gerrymandered. Yeah. The, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit more rhetorical. I mean, the shipping container building was like a very uh, 90s meme, wasn't I it? I mean, it's, it was a noughties meme, and it's a this decade meme, and it was a like teens meme, and I would say it's still a meme. There's still 
I mean, the thing is now it's got to the point where it, they are corporate. Yeah. They are only done... I suppose, yeah. Like, in the 90s... There's the, 90s, the, there's it the was mall down there, isn't there? Yeah. In, in Shoreditch, yeah. Yeah, there's the mall. Uh, there's another one in Brixton, mm. which is slightly less corporate, but still... I mean, or at least... Oh, corporate. I mean, there's one right there, actually, which I'm just... Yeah, <laughs> there's just another one there. Yeah. Just gone out of my head, yeah. Which is a kind of, like, work unit. There you go, there's influence. It's a way of selling, like... They're very narrow plans. Yeah. But it sort of sells... It's selling of, like, a particular image, isn't it? Of, like, get your hands dirty, rough and ready. I don't actually do. know... I don't know if my... Uh, like, when we were looking at a project... This was in the late noughties. Looking at a project, actually using it, it was completely... It had, like, no tectonic function at all. Mm. Like, we were, we were examining ways in which you could use it. By the time you've, like, cut open them enough to make them useful, you basically have to kind of, like, structurally reinforce them. It was fine if you just had... If each unit was exactly the shipping container and they, you could set them top of each other and you had a gantry, mm -hmm. you had a deck to kind of connect them. But if you wanted to use it for anything else, it, they weren't really... You can't really make them wider. Because yeah. they lose, they kind of function structurally like a monocoque. They need yeah. all the walls. Yeah. Those are his low road example. Now, in the TV series, he has other examples. So he has the example which was in one of the the, the various illegally built or like pre-planning built, self-built holiday homes in the UK that are kind of built in fields in oh. the like thirties, and they're then kind of adapted. Yeah. From there, as you know, um, I can't remember the examples. Houses that evolved out of sheds, yeah, as a kind of opportunity for like working people to build houses in the thirties mm. on agricultural land. There, obviously, people could. It was it was very quaint because people had all their own kind of ramshackle ways of doing. It was stuff. a kind of like English uh, favela, like you know, it was <laughs> without plumbing and yeah. uh, like. Very jerry-built, but kind of also charming. Yeah. I mean, he is sort of onto something about the attraction of certain kinds of buildings. You know, in the middle of last year, we were in Toronto, and then in on one of the islands off the coast there, there's a whole village of exactly what you're describing, these kind of holiday house slash sort of datchas built by people on tiny little plots, um, which become like a complete expression of them they're kind of you know it, it's a sort of a, a space to explore a, an individual fantasy I, I mean then I, I guess also for like inhabiting sort of classically like low road buildings I mean I've lived in a warehouse um, conversion of which there have been lots in London at, at various times where you get these like light industrial buildings and people put in bedrooms and you have these this kind right. of exciting but do you think sort that's actually a low road conversion in London that's it was quite low road, yeah. It was, okay. it was quite cheap. There's a thing where they are owned, a lot of them are owned by landlords without that much money, often from particular minority communities who bought them in, say, the 60s or something and are holding them but don't have that much working capital. And then, so they do like these kind mm. of quite cheap conversions get them into housing, make slightly more money, and then they will eventually sell. I mean, they do eventually sell out um, quite a long way down. So, so yeah, no, I would say they are kind of low road. Like, there was yeah. not a lot of money was spent on the on those conversions, actually. But that wasn't by the users. That was by the well, landlord. That's sort of what I mean. Like, yeah. if it's like a landlord just 
I think a lot of these dynamics, and he does talk about this later in the book a bit, but a lot of these dynamics are really actually to do with ownership. Yeah. Rather than... Um, architecture. Architecture. Yeah. Obviously, if you own... Like, one of the reasons people here in London are kind of so obsessed with wanting to own a home is that you're not like a perpetual guest. resident yeah. guest in a house that you can be turfed out of at any time. A yeah. dynamic which th- means that you don't even want to make that make it nice at all, let alone yeah. improve the building. And also you have no security. And that is a dynamic which obviously makes things less pleasant. But I don't think that's to do with building design. That's to do with tenure. Yeah, it's to do with money. Which, I, yeah, and I would say absolutely. I think that that's a weakness of the diagnosis of what a low road... A low road building is principally a phenomenon of economics. Yeah, it's where the and, occupier and, yeah. can do what they want, um, either because they're allowed to do what they want by the landlord or because the landlord does not know or because they own the building yeah. or because they have those rights for some reason. Yeah, and where, where it happens in a kind of interesting and exceptional way is generally because it's a kind of slow crisis of some kind, like the landlord doesn't care, the building is somewhat derelict. Um, uh, I mean, those, those holiday things in England were slated for demolition the whole time because they were kind of illegally developed. Yeah. They didn't meet... They were self-builds without, like, plumbing or yeah. sewerage. Um, well, I mean, if you take, for example, the place where Brand... I mean, one of Brand's homes is in uh, Sausalito, which is in uh, this houseboat community there, which is just north of uh, San Francisco. And uh, that was essentially a kind of illegal squat for a long time. A lot of people set up these houseboats, started living there, and was eventually kind of regularised. But I would imagine, like, my experience in general of how these places are regularised is, like, you have a settled community, and then that community developed those rights yeah but it is for them exclusively as in yeah a number of people have the right to continue having they kind of develop a squatter's rice and then it's regularized but yeah. it doesn't mean that that it's kind of like the whole community has its own lifespan yeah where it starts as something illegal and becomes regularized and then it's a sort of established community it's not that you can't roll that out everywhere. That, again, is also to do with tenure. It's to do with the kind of accrued rights of a community who've built up this thing and then they have managed politically yeah. to have it accepted or not accepted. Yeah. I mean, you can design cheap stuff. You can design... I mean, people now design warehouses for flexible occupation. Sure. You but, know? like, the main problem that um, I've experienced in my life, and I'm sure many, and I don't believe this is unique to London, no. is that actually in the developed world, in most of the places people want to be, um, land value and development value is the key kind of... Yeah, it's the it's, problem. It's more important than a marginal cost of different types of building. And that's really what people are sort of shifting around. And between ownership, development rights... Yeah, like because some things are arbitraging ownership, but some things are also arbitraging development rights. Right? Yeah. You're not allowed to develop on this bit of land. You've illegally developed on it as a group of people. Yeah, um, and then it's a negotiation about whether that's going to be regularized or demolished. Yeah, and the and um, these buildings can exist in the adaptations because 
that ownership is so uncertain that people don't mind you knocking through the wall because it's probably going to be knocked down. And that's slightly carnivalesque because yeah. normally we're like used to an atmosphere where everyone is not allowed to um, knock the walls down, have the insane like rave party um, and knock the walls down. And that's quite exciting, but that's a sort of transitory state. Yeah. I mean, we've gone into this chapter a lot, but I think... Well, it's the kind of... This is like the vision of what... what well, it's one of the two visions of what, what buildings which are kind of have... Uh, which are kind of... Yeah, which have like a conscious Which mature point. like fine wine. Yeah. Yeah. But I think... Yeah. And I think those communities do mature like fine wine because like if it starts as... You can imagine something like this. I'm going to make up a hypothetical thing. Like yeah. on the outskirts of a town, there is a like homeless community where they build shacks. And then over time, they manage to avoid getting evicted. Yeah. Um, but the demographics change slightly and people get more like... Yeah. Raise settled, fa- raise families, raise families, and yeah. then they put like things into it, and then eventually the council comes in and installs like sewage and water supplies, and then it becomes like a hippie commune of like lots of eccentric things. It's like yeah. different people change, and then it becomes like a tourist attraction. Yeah, um, and <laughs> that sort of yeah, but like that can and also go off the road in other ways, you know, or um, yeah. yeah, yeah, or or like early on, uh, it could have a, like a terrible fire and people could die, and the council could demolish the whole thing. Am I being too critical? Does he have something... Does he have more of a point than I'm giving him? No, I think that, you know, I think low road... The thing is, he's unarguably kind of correct. Like, this is a way that lots of buildings sort of thrive and become kind of intensely valued and part of, uh, you know, part of sort of meaningful communities and, you know, sort of support life in a very, you know... Like, this is a real description of how lots of lovely buildings come about. It's through this kind of evolution of something which no one was very interested in. I guess the thing is, uh, he's going to want to try and instrumentalise that into a critique of how you design buildings in the first place, which I think it's not really suited to, because those... These buildings are not... It's not really a design question. are not, like, well-designed... They're not buildings that are designed with that. If you could could make any building into a low-row building, I think. Yeah, or... And you could design... And lots of people do try to design like buildings which meet these kinds of, you know, which have these sorts of qualities. And the reasons why it's difficult to do them are economic reasons. They're not, they're not because of a kind of uh, cultural antipathy within, <laughs> within architecture to, to this sort of idea. I mean, don't you think that like a uh, curtain wall, like skyscraper or a uh, commodity housing development in the right economic circumstances could also meet? Yeah, it could be, yeah. Like if like if everyone left Canary Wharf and it completely failed and like all the glass panels started falling off and they were replaced with like plywood, it'd be lovely, yeah. You could and and then you would have this like strange community in mean, the office, the now abandoned office towers, yeah, of like hippies, and then people would start like having hippie boats in the weird watery bits and like it could all the, like most extremely opposite thing could be like this. It's due to with economic and political circumstances. Let's do the high road. Sure. He's like five examples. Yeah, so he has the houses of three presidents, Washington, Madison and Jefferson. He has the... He um, has the London Library. The Boston Athenaeum and Chatsworth. And Chatsworth, yes. Uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the other most cited people is Deborah Cavendish, nay Mitford, Duchess of Devonshire, which she would not necessarily have predicted. 
Um, yeah. I mean, so one of his better examples is the London Library, which is a building I'm familiar with, uh, which is uh, which is a kind of private members library set up in the 19th century and which has gradually expanded from this kind of street front on St. James Square uh, to kind of take in a whole series of surrounding buildings. This is a plan from the Hayworth Tompkins scheme, uh, which where they did a sort of partial refurbishment and that was uh, about ten years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah, which is very nice, like very nice design, and it is a wonderful. It's a wonderful building and a kind of like a wonderful, like very atmospheric, very very sort of beautiful uh, institution, a lovely place, and uh, like a, and a very compelling example of how you know, a building can kind of expand and be tailored to the growth of uh, an institution over a century. Yeah, it's very clearly, like, messily accreted. Yeah. Um, it's it's always been... It's in a prestigious and expensive part of London. Yeah. It's always had a reasonably... It's always been a prestigious cultural institution and has always had enough money. Yeah. And it sort of operates like a club. Yeah. And has always had the ability to sort of gently and slowly expand. Yeah. And never really had a crisis. But there are other examples of things. Like, I, I was thinking, comparing this to, like, the various prevails of the British Library. Yeah. Which used to be in an incredibly shabby setup in the middle of the British Museum. Yeah. Which was quite fun, but, like... Yeah. Well, not very mainta- well maintained uh, setup. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit sad. So it was. I mean, it was a purpose built entirely cast iron building, including both stacks and reading room. And then they got rid of all the stacks, but left the reading room, which is now kind of this sort of strange mausoleum for the previous scheme. They should have moved that to the new one, or something. <coughs> and like anyway. they should have they should have moved the whole building yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but they didn't do that. So what, I mean, he has other examples. He's got the president's houses, which essentially follow this trajectory where they expand over the life of the president and then sort of freeze. stop because yeah. they like become, go through a period become of becoming museum, economically yeah. and then become museums. Yeah. Um, what was his real lessons? Well, I guess that this is just the other example of how buildings can change over time so this is the much longer the much longer period i mean he does also talk about like salisbury cathedral these sorts of classic examples of buildings which sort of go on and on and on and have endless revisions it's an interesting example that he uses salisbury cathedral which is essentially of all the cathedrals in this country one that was built at one time yeah and there are no additions since its construction is really interesting yeah it was built in one go in like forty years. Yeah, it's like lost some of the kind of original charm, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, the organs been moved around, but like nothing has been done that significantly affects what it's like. Yeah, other than moving, you know, moving some screens around and an organ. I don't know. It's, uh, I'm not sure sometimes why he's chosen particular examples. Which is because it's almost the only cathedral like that in the country. Yeah. Or the only medieval cathedral like that in the country. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really feel he ever really explains what he's trying to show with his examples. Yeah. He compares the attitudes of the American presidents and the way that they end up laying out their 
buildings, you yeah. know. Uh, Washington is very pragmatic and has peasant wisdom of some sort yeah. or something like that, which leads him, leads him to an instinctive genius solution. Jefferson, Jefferson, Jefferson is, is a very uncompromising. It's highfalutin and com uncompromising. Yeah. Which leads to... He doesn't a, mind when the ink freezes in the inkwell. Yes. Or uh, when his wife, like, immediately drops dead, of <laughs> quite possibly yeah. of cold. Uh, um, no, I'm not sure. They see they seem a bit different, those ones. Um, I suppose, yes, one can kind of continuously build a house through one's whole life. It's quite a nice thing to do. It's quite, you know, interesting thing to do. But they don't, it doesn't track any evolution except for just sort of having more money and wanting to have another go. I guess, you know, we talked about a house like this when we talked about Strawberry Hill back in the mists of mm. time, which is um, very much the same sort of thing. But um, it's not like a house... It's funny that he doesn't have... He chooses examples where the house... where the building doesn't change. Chatsworth mm. is just Chatsworth as it was built. And there have been additions, but they're not yeah. what you want to look at. Salisbury Cathedral is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, he hasn't chosen a building, you know, he hasn't chosen a building which has expanded through a whole series of different things at different times to produce some interesting, um, you know, melange of historical styles. No. Uh, which is an alternative sort of thing. He's chosen things that really exist in stasis. Yeah. I mean, I kind of felt like the book would have been a lot better if it had just been these chapters, but they'd been expanded and had much better research. Yeah, like the the theory of the theory theory of flow, the yeah. low road building, the high road building, and then a kind of explanation, like a much deeper explanation of the sort of different ways in which that can kind of work out. Because otherwise, like a I lot really of wanted, a, I really wanted something that was more expandable to like to to the ninety nine percent of buildings that are not these, mm. which is the like normal road building. Because he has a third example, which is like. Um, Starchitect buildings, which yeah. is completely yeah, which, which is can... almost no buildings, yeah, which is almost no buildings. The high road is very few buildings, and the low road is very few buildings in uh, expensive areas because yeah. it's to do with the thing not being valuable. <coughs> um, whereas, like, actually, how like the not abandoned but not totally new buildings in mature cities change. Uh, all mature towns change, it, it would be something quite interesting. And I was kind yeah. of hoping it would get to that bit. What's the middle road? But it doesn't. Is like, there there's nothing yes. between kind of squatter... We need a style. third way. In well, we don't classic, need a third way. Classic mid-90s style. Yeah, it's not we need a third way. It's just that, <laughs> it's just that we live in the third way. Yeah. The third way is where, is where you almost always live. Yeah. Um, Which is, yeah sometimes you live in the low road. They change a little bit and they change on a kind of medium time scale. Like yeah. people build a slightly larger extension. Or, yeah. or they, the office building is revamped and given a new facade. Yeah. Which dramatically improves its performance for the occupants. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the, f the flat that I live in, which is behind me at this moment, there was a separate toilet and bathroom and we knocked them together to make a combined toilet bathroom. It doesn't. I'm not sure that's really low road, though. No, I mean, that's I, not low road. I don't know. I mean, like you carefully did it to preserve and enhance value. Yeah, it depends how you kind of construe low road. In one sense, actually, like the the this building is quite well designed to facilitate change over time because the structure is the box around the outside, 
and the internal walls. What do you mean, like are, houses and flats? Like normal houses and flats, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the internal walls are predominantly non-structural. It depends how you sort of set what the boundaries of the, the low road are, but it could either be almost everything, which is what I initially thought, or kind of just islands created by particular economic circumstances. Yeah. It it seems to be almost things that exist kind of like between... When you've got like a difference between what it should be worth and what it is worth because of something. Yeah. It becomes really weird at this point because like his principal source for the high road building is Deborah, Duchess of Devonshire, who he quotes (laughs) at length. It, like in these very long verbatim quotes, rambling about all kinds of stuff, <laughs> and they have no insight at all. Yeah, she doesn't sound. There was a whole bit where she's. I mean, she's it's, quoted. It, she's it quoted. Just feels like, oh, I found this posho. Yeah. <laughs> the, the aristocratic, the old aristocratic charm, and her very posh accent made me very excited, yeah. and I wanted to speak to her for hours and hours. How frightfully exotic these old world aristocrats are yeah what an interesting life she has lived as a rich person in a big house her photo in the in the in the book is very bizarre um i have no other explanation for why he found it interesting to yeah <laughs> she goes on and on for ages and ages about like how they're always having to fix different bits like the classic oh, yes, the, so the council are so boring and the we're classic always oh, to oh poor me like aristocrat thing of like oh the roof don't you know the roof is terribly expensive to maintain <laughs> yeah no she appears a bit later in the whole bit of where she's and like <laughs> sounding off about the council stopping them from doing some kind of slum development in their in their <laughs> like outbuildings. Like, I mean, even if you don't, even <laughs> if you don't have a, I mean, it's not that the, the, the things she's saying are unreasonable. It's just that they're irrelevant. And they're kind of, of, but they're pretty banal, <laughs> and they're and it's also yeah, it's just so weird. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. okay so like, we, that's that. And okay. The, but, but he does make clear what he doesn't like. Yeah. Which is magazine architecture. Which is architecture. Yeah. So. Building 20 in uh, MIT is contrasted with this other building, the Buisner Building, in um, uh, which was uh, an office building built by IM Pei for MIT, uh, initially without a clear program, but which then was used to, high, to um, house the um, MIT Media Lab, which is an institution that Brand was very connected with, digital media kind of research organization very influential yeah lots, lots of, of things were being called media labs a bit yeah. after this yeah 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 i mean the basically the things that were being called media labs after this generally were libraries <laughs> oh yes uh yeah he really hates this building i mean it doesn't look great <laughs> it doesn't look great he talks about how it really really doesn't work for its occupants he talks about how it isolates them from each other uh through its like big open it has these big atria which you don't really look into from the offices the uh, the offices are kind of separated by this like smoked glass or by walls and it's it's got multiple different entrances it's all uh feels very anonymous and seems to prevent people from having real sort of social contact it's weird that the problem that he suggests with this building is that the architects have spent too much effort trying to make it look good yeah it looks extremely <laughs> anonymous it looks i mean like slightly posher version of like <laughs> what office buildings all looked like in Chinese cities in about 1980, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is like tiles on the outside. <laughs> um, it's like uh, a slightly uh, higher spec kind of tile rather than the like little white bathroom tiles, which is what they mostly had. I mean, um, I'm, I'm not sure he's wrong that it's a bad building. I haven't been yeah. there, so it's hard to tell sometimes. Like, couldn't you just call it bad design? It does look like a bad piece of design, but for him, it's a sign of something bigger, which is architects 
don't care about their users. It's a big and section where he literally goes like, I don't want to be another one of these architecture bashers. And then there is there 10 is pages. Massive, yeah, I think one of the real problems in, uh, is that at this point, kind of the voice of Chris Alexander takes over. And a lot of what he has to say is essentially like paraphrasing Christopher Alexander's sort of slightly strange uh, sort of psychodrama about the architectural profession and its rejection and Chris, of him. In the TV series, Chris Alexander keeps talking about my profession, even yeah. though he's not an architect. <laughs> and he has Christopher Alexander architects written underneath him. And he's yeah. not an architect. He can call himself an architect, so I don't care. Um, That's fine. <laughs> but like, in my opinion, there's, there's can be two ways you can be an architect. You can be qualified as an architect, or you can be good at designing buildings. And he doesn't meet either of those. Okay. Shots fired. Yeah. In the TV series, he also goes into various other things which are wrong with this building, which... Oh, no, I'll just finish. So his theory of what's wrong with architecture is that architects don't care... Our architects want their buildings to just stay the same forever. They don't care about the life of the building after it's built. And they're principally... They're really interested only uh, in this kind of, like, uh, outer image of the building as it appears in a magazine this yeah. kind of projection of it into media and into very image focused uh discourse of the of the profession and as a form the of advertising the strange thing is like um, that's a very rehearsed yeah. argument yeah like it's, it's not like you know all they care all pe these people care about is like flashy things is that he also then says some things that are genuinely problematic of architecture which is that um, architects have very limited control of projects. They're driven by clients who often yeah. like, want to make money or yeah. do something. Um, architectural production is kind of like highly specialized and outsourced. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, stuff has to be kind of bought in. He sort of says all that and then, but then goes, but the real reason it's bad is because architects uh, only want to make things that look good in pictures and architecture schools make them like that they teach them yeah it comes down to the degeneracy of architecture schools which really like for me that's like that's the voice of chris alexander coming through it's like it's a cultural problem uh, uh there's something it's entirely sustained by the like degeneracy and wickedness of architects themselves it's not something structural or something which exists in a kind of broader, like, economic context. Um, it's really weird because it, he's could, like, it could go away if architects of, themselves were to become more virtuous yeah. and to acquire deeper insight. He kind of says various other things that are, yeah. like, making it kind of difficult to do nice it's buildings. Really and believes. then he says, no, it's not that. It's not <laughs> it's that. It's not that. That's not the it's reason. Not that. The it's real that reason is wicked. this. They're wicked. Yeah. So um, the, we should say the building itself doesn't look great. It's a yeah. It's it's pretty banal looking, and it doesn't look very nice on well, the inside either. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, so he's like, and I think that his so his his, sort his of statement criticism is that architects are obsessed about making buildings look good in photographs. Yeah. Um, this one doesn't look. If great you in want photos, to judge, yeah. yeah, yeah, just look at photographs of this building and tell me if you think this is a building which has been ruthlessly optimized to look good in photographs. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't strike me that way. Uh, maybe. Maybe the interior. Uh, maybe there was an idea there. I, for, to me, this one feels quite phoned in by um, old IMP. Um, in the in the TV show, he goes on a bit more about the things which were wrong about this building, which included that one of the lifts went on fire, and also that the air conditioning didn't work. And then at one point, the entire building was filled with the disgusting smell of something dead. <laughs> but which I, well, it, it, worth saying. Those are all engineers' responsibilities. 
and yeah. not the fault of the I architect. Mean, architects, architects don't design lifts. Yeah, or air handling. Yes, no, uh, I mean... At all. Have you ever, in your working life, had a really satisfactory, happy... I, I've met cultured and interesting m Have you ever heard, heard anyone say we had a wonderful m and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the experience was such a dream. They didn't yeah, want to feel anything. They were very we good. Have you, has, <laughs> I would really recommend working with them. No. Uh, well, uh, I've forgotten his name, in spite of the fact that I've met Max Gordon. Yeah, like a lot of people were yeah. recommending Max when he yeah. was alive. No, I think, and he was I a very personal and cultured personality. Good. They are said to be good and very expensive. Yes. Yes, well, they are good. Sometimes it pays for quality. So, you know, I, I yeah. have heard of they it. Have, I've just never experienced heard. it in yeah. my actual life. Yeah. Do you know something interesting no, yeah, with, that, with that picture? Yeah. You seem to be able to open the windows. It does look like it, doesn't it? Which he says is impossible. But, but maybe it's a recent thing. Maybe they put new windows in. Yeah. Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of artificial intelligence, was gazing across the deserted Media Lab atrium with me Monday. The problem with architects, he rasped, is that they think they're artists and they're not very competent. Um, and that <coughs> is broadly <laughs> the critique. I mean, uh, architects can be artists. They don't yeah. have to think it. It can be true. Yeah. And um, whether they're good or not depends yeah. on whether they are good or not architects. Yeah. I mean, this building, it doesn't. It doesn't look great. I think it's yeah, but uh, you can't just have an argument where you choose all the exa examples as this ridiculous straw men. Yeah, but th the thing is, almost no buildings are like this. <laughs> this is the building by what was at the time it was commissioned the most famous and successful architect in the world, and uh, the MIT campus is basically a collection of buildings like that. When you are an enormously like this is a private research university in Massachusetts, which has like more money than quite a lot of nation states. And the way that they like to do things is that they like to have a all of their buildings by incredibly famous architects. That's the way that they commission them. And they want them to be these kind of showpieces. But this is that not is one that you will be that will crop up normally in an architecture. No, I mean this whereas is, this is like the Alto one, for example, yeah. might, although actually it's not a particularly good example of an Alto building. Yeah, it looks it's okay. It's just the one in America. Yeah, they got they got a Geary one, they got a Stephen Hall one. They're like they have them by everyone. Yeah. And like all of these kind of you know, these this type of university in America, that's what they do. They commission I mean he's right that they are like pieces of art because they are prestige commissions where this one is just so it's bad this one it's not great this one no I, i'm not i'm not defending it but it's a prestige commission I they mean, want the most famous people to do uh, like an example of their style this is and nearer this is nearer to a certain one uh, our dear alma mater i would say in oh, terms really? of quality. Yeah. the reason why the buildings at mit end up being like this is because of the culture of the institution mit it's not because of the ideology of architects as a whole. Yeah. You um, could get someone who would be very happy to build another Building 20 style cheap and cheerful one. That would not be hard. You could yeah. get any, but... I would say he has, like, two... There's two things. There's one that's, like... He sort of implies that clients don't choose what the buildings are going to be like, yeah. which they do. It's like any of these other things. You're paying them to do a job, and you choose who they are and they choose what they're going to do there is and a market normally, and there is there is a surplus of architects yeah, i would normally. say quite a big one <laughs> you can get any yeah. kind you want yeah exactly you choose 
Um, and the yeah. other thing he has, he has an obsession, which has already cropped up this, but it will continue through the book with, like, everything is, like, architects make things, like, buildings are perpetually leaking. Yeah. And um, services are rubbish. And what and what happened after the lift caught fire? Do you think it kept catching fire forever, Luke? No, I don't think so. Do you think do you think someone from Otis came down and fixed it? Yeah, probably. Do you think they got uh, were they on Otis or do you think they were on Could some be, what Tiss and Krups? Was it a prestige uh what's the most expensive kind of lift? What's the I don't know. Like <laughs> in a way, I think part of the disappointment of this is like Stuart Brand is a person who's very interested in technology, who like has thought a lot about technology, but who doesn't really seem to have ever really considered specifically what type of technological object a building is. And this is it, 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 this is like what you have to perpetually calm clients down on, which is yeah. and it feels to me like if you're working with some sort of piece of technology, yeah. like a building or a bit yeah. of software or something, and it doesn't work and you don't understand why. You panic. People yeah. panic. It's natural. So, like, when something goes a bit wrong on a building site and there's, like, water on the floor, if the clients are there, they get very concerned. Yeah. And you might know what you've got to do is turn off the tap and then they'll, like, just put, like, a... Yeah. They'll fix that joint or whatever and yeah. it will be the work of 10 minutes. But they will get very alarmed and you have yeah. to be very, like, charismatically calm. Yeah. One of my old bosses was just so good at this. Like it wouldn't like the thing could be on fire and uh, people would just come out like glowing. Like the progress is so good. I it's love wonderful. I love yeah, the, the flames. So really warm in so warm in there. Illuminated yeah. <laughs> the building to so fantastic warm. effect. And, and actually the, the, the flooding on the floor was such a good combination with the but yeah. there is a truth that like if, if you don't understand yeah. what's wrong and something is manifesting wrong, yeah. You can't kind of people panic. And I would have hoped that you could use the technology because it's like that when you're developing like a yeah. device or a bit of software all the time. Like, but they like like, like they, things it, crash for like stupid reasons. It's not yeah. really to do with anything important, and it completely stops it working all the time. Yeah. And then someone, and then you just find out what's wrong with it and you fix it. And the building's just like that. The, yeah. The, the lift caught fire. What we shall do is repair the lift, yeah. diagnose the problem, and resolve it. The roof is leaking. Yeah. Probably there's a problem. Yeah. Perhaps someone should go up there and sort it out. Yeah. And if you've got people on site, often that can be done in an afternoon. Yeah. But they also inevitably have problems. Yeah. Because they are extremely complicated and generally unique. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's just, just the way loads they are. of things that have come yeah. together. Yeah. And it's been the work of many hands. How many components go into buildings? Like a yeah. big building? Yeah. A yeah. million? Yeah. You might have a million things in the building. Yes, and it will... As many as a space shuttle, but yeah. it's done for... It's done as a one-off, much yeah. cheaper, yeah, uh, by much less expert people. Weirdly, his, like, principal architectural target in the real book, beef with one... Yeah, yeah. he <laughs> loves Brian Eno, hates and Richard. the Duchess of Devonshire, and hates Richard Rogers, yeah. that meretricious architect. Yeah. Weirdly, he has a funny bit in the book where he's like, yeah, the three high-tech architects in the UK, there was Sterling, Foster, and Rogers. Foster's okay. Sterling, pretty bad. Rogers, worst of all. It's weird, because Sterling's not really a high-tech architect. Not really, no. He does lots of things. And the other, that is like a very strange take. Yeah. Very much like one of architecture's nice just, guys. It's weird because he's like he was like like. Yeah, I don't know where the animus comes I met, from. But I, he's met, really I met Rogers when I was a child <laughs> several times, and he was like an extremely personable person. Yeah. As well as his buildings being, or uh, like a, as a place to be employed, it has a reputation for being 
like still somewhat difficult and it's on hot potentially rather hard times now but um uh, like being the nicest employer of yeah. the sort of big yeah. architect offices in london and the buildings being like the most humane yeah it's very strange. Yeah, so he has a whole bit about how the Pompidou Centre is like a complete failure. Um, I mean, the, in some ways, the Pompidou Centre isn't great, but for absolutely not the reasons. Yeah, so there's one thing about the Pompidou Centre which is great, which is the thing he identifies as rubbish. Yeah, Pompidou Centre is considered a landmark. Uh, well, where can, the, do you think that considered that considered deserves to be in? That's like this yeah. so-called building. Yeah. Where the Eiffel Tower exposed its structure in an elegant and monumental way, Pompidou Centre tries to do the same with its services. But iron structure could withstand the elements much better than brightly coloured ducts and pipes. The Eiffel Tower's lasting message to architecture is, exposed structure can be gorgeous. Pompidou's lasting measure, me- message is, never expose services. And this is all because I guess he'd read some article that said that they were having maintenance issues. At the I mean, they Pompidou have had Centre. problems with this building. Yeah. But they're not really... I mean, I'm sure they do require maintenance. But yes. that's not really been... No. I would say this is a very successful building. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think this... I wouldn't say it's a very successful building, but I would say the facade design is a very successful facade design. Yeah. To the extent that there's an issue with the Pompidou, it's actually that it is too flexible. So the concept... I mean, if you don't know the like essential concept of it, the, it, it was designed to have these enormous uninterrupted spaces for the for the display of exhibitions and so there they're these like huge spaces with these big steel roof trusses and then all the services and all the circulation are on the outside and you could there's one like, thing i think they should yeah. have done actually that i think would have made it cool yeah. the floor decks should be like giant lifts so you can move all the floors up and down and yeah. then it would be weird enough that you yeah. could have like an you could just turn the whole thing into a massive cavernous thing yeah or like have one of them going up and down all the time. It can squish all the people yeah. at a certain point. Yes. Everyone down, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like bugs. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be that would have done it. That would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, in the building, it would almost be technologically possible because it, they're all on. Yeah, it's weird that he has such a bee in his bonnet about this. It's uh, yeah, you know, really another building that's really <laughs> <laughs> shit. Yeah. Another terrible. What's the? What do you think the worst building in London is? Oh, the Lloyds of London. Is it the yeah. beloved Lloyds building? <laughs> the beloved Lloyds building, also by Rogers. Yeah, which apparently is, is <laughs> terrible and awful. Ha- hated by its users and all this kind of stuff. Completely untrue. Um, the, yeah, I mean, this is what I find like weird and it's weird and it shows a certain like superficiality of engagement is that actually the Pompidou Centre is a really serious attempt to engage with this problem with, of what happens to buildings after they're built. Like, the whole novelty of their solution, the reason why they're selected, uh, and the reason why it is a kind of landmark in architectural history is that it's an extremely creative response to the problem of, you know, how do we create uh, really flexible space for exhibitions? And The entire like, interior is deployable, except for the key failure of not having the floor plates as lifts. Well, yeah, uh, and the thing is, <laughs> at the end of the day, the issue with it is, I mean, I think actually that like... It they don't have it, any good artwork to put inside it? Well, I mean, they have lots of temporary exhibitions and things, but like it's... The issue is, actually, a lot of the time when you display stuff, you don't need a completely flexible space. You just need a somewhat flexible space. And they, I think, slightly exceeded the necessary brief for a place to display stuff because you don't... There's nothing... 
Like there's never anything to display, uh, which uh, is which is actually like thirty also, by sixty meters in or whatever. Fact, it is occupying the sort of place of like the. It exists in a space I would say between the Tate Modern and the Bilbao Guggenheim, which were both rather later. Yeah. Where the Bilbao Guggenheim is entirely a work of sculpture and makes no pretense of being designed to do anything. Yeah. I mean, it has interior space which can be used, but like, yeah. so what? Uh, and there is work there. And the Tate Modern is like, okay, we've got this big, impressive, cool building already. Let's, let's get some power station. Yeah. Um, let's do, and they did a very good job, but it's like, let's use what's cool about it already to do something uh, and display art. Whereas this is kind of like, let's build a cool building optimized to display art, but it kind of, it has a lot of charisma, but the charisma isn't directed towards the art. No, it's sort of towards the outside. Yeah. But anyway, the, it's still, he doesn't talk about any it's of that. Still he has no interest in any of that. What he is cool. interested in is that this person has had the temerity. Yeah, the to, temerity do, to do to his idea in a way that he... To do his idea and to in, have the pipes on the outside. In the way that he doesn't like. As it yeah. is awful. Yeah. Terrible. Okay, what else does he talk about? Yeah, he has various other chapters. I mean... There's uh, a bit about preservation. Is that what comes next? Um, uh, Un oh, there's real there's estate. Yes. So he has a, a criticism. This is like basically pure Jane Jacobs. Yeah. This is. Yeah. Like and it has got to He's read Jane, Jane Jacobs. Jacobs. You could essentially listen to our discussion of Jane Jacobs and get the whole idea. Um, well, I mean, so many people have said our yeah. discussion of Jane Jacobs is wrong. I'm not yeah. questioning myself, but like, I'm not. Uh, it's basically an observ one of her observations is that. Uh, Continuity in neighbourhoods is interrupted when money flows in very fast uh, and, like, big development happens very rapidly. Uh, what she's interested in is this sort of yeah. Goldilocks zone of, like, just enough gen uh, gentrification at just the right sort of pace. And uh, Yeah, I, and, I, I, I and, can kind and, of remember know, that. Yeah, and that basically, that's basically his idea as well, which is, which is you know, um, at that kind of pace, buildings tend to remain in place somewhat be infilled a bit and be adapted a bit and you know you get uh, a kind of continuing life the point of like what what was the point he was making with churches like i understand the example is there's been a church on a site it starts as a like adobe catholic church um it's revamped uh slightly mock gothic and then it's rebuilt in brick as yeah. a more gothic -y one and then it's rebuilt as like a santa fe Style. you know whitewashed gothic one and he says this happens because the church thinks that the real estate is important yeah it's kind of They've continuously got a prestigious site yeah uh, to be honest i just i don't think that there's really anything in this um chapter he's beyond, got an beyond the kind leon creer he's got, yeah he's a big fan of leon creer and uh it's and it says you should like he's into getting rich slowly that's what his that's that's his, yeah um, that's it yeah do you know you know who gets rich slowly uh, property owners. Wait, no, yeah. the beloved genius. The beloved genius. Who? The Duchess of Devonshire. Oh, De yeah, Deborah. Aristocratic landowners. Deborah. Yes. Um, it's the sort of slow wealth movement. Right, and then we have preservation, which is a very weird chapter. Which is, uh, I've been saying that about every chapter. Like all of these, it, like it's got bits of kind of interesting stuff but the way in which it's synthesized is not coherent so he talks a little bit about the preservation mo uh, movement I mean, it might be that we're in a strange place because he thinks that the uk is doing it really well mm. 
Um, so maybe we're just because we're the beneficiaries of that. Oh um, uh, yeah. Uh, we don't really understand what's bad. And that might be true. I don't know. So he's basically speaking in favour of preservation. And, and he sort of talks a little bit about the preservation movement, which is kind of from the 60s onwards in um, the United States, as it, as as here to some extent, um, uh, in opposition to urban redevelopment. I mean, interestingly, like he has a real go at Robert Venturi, who he hates. Well, Venturi was actually like a big... Um, Who's a preservationist? Was a, was a big preservationist. Yeah. And, and uh, he, he and... Um, he just thinks you should also preserve... Uh, some yeah. new things as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> Denise Scott Brown and, and he were involved in a lot of stuff in Pennsylvania, uh, in uh, uh, Philadelphia. Yeah, we got preservation, but what does preservation mean? It's it's it kind of means all sorts of things. There is, um, I guess, that what he's interested in proving with it is that people's fondness for old buildings shows the value of allowing buildings to exist through time and uh, the attachment that people build up with old buildings over time is something which kind of is of, is like sort of meaningful and needs to be taken greater account of. And, you know, I think that that is... And the like great success of this is the conversion of <laughs> an <laughs> early 19th century house into a yeah. McDonald's. Yeah, the conversion of an 18th century, Sorry, 18th century. Um, vernacular house into... McDonald's, yeah. Yeah, it's into the 12,000th McDonald's. Yes, just off Jericho Turnpike on Long Island. You can sort of tell where he's been on his holidays, can't you? <laughs> like, all of this is... I mean, like, which is an interesting example, because it's not yeah. one that, like, I would have... It's a perfectly nice conversion. I think that McDonald's seem to be <laughs> taking good care of this building, and all, also, pa all power to them. Yeah, there's a lot in this, which is, you've got different approaches. And previously, I'm sure we've talked about different approaches to architectural theory where you can have prescriptive if you do it like this you'll end up like with an understanding of my genius plan yeah. so you know um Le Corbusier did quite a lot of that yeah or descriptive like this is how buildings or cities are, are like how they are or yeah. my ones this is why my ones are like there are yeah and here I would just say really it's like I'm just going to make a series of observations yeah yeah I'd forgotten how long this chapter was actually and but it's kind of like you said um, the whole Earth catalogue is a cut and paste job where he's just like got things, cut them out, yeah, and, like got them, like lifo copied them, and then it goes out to the presses. And, and this feels a bit like that. It's like he's just kind of written down his ideas. I mean, yeah, there's a more germane example which he talks about the conversion of his another the, one the of little tug, the little tugboat that they live in, yeah, or what one of the places they live in. But I mean, he's making a kind of straightforward point that you can you create much more interesting spaces when you have. Uh, a bit of a strange <laughs> like, space to start with. He's actually even like architects can be very uh, like self-praising where they want yeah. to be, but like he has a line here which says like the moment of like supreme genius in this design. What, what turned out to be the houseboat's most fiendishly clever feature, a little By opening me. <laughs> that was easily reached from the kitchen below. And what is the most fiendishly clever thing that he's come up with? Is it a weird little cat flap? There's a special little cat flap between the low-down kitchen and this sort of bed platform upstairs where you can pass yes. things up and down. Yep, at floor level. Well, that's kind of sweet. I mean, I, I'm, I'm rather, like, enjoy all this sort of this sort of stuff. Yeah, the stuff that I don't really get. So he has this thing which is all, yeah, Death of a Cottage, which I think is cribbed from a book. <laughs> this whole thing, I think, is literally taken the whole thing. Yeah, it's taken, it's taken from a book, uh, from, I think, a kind of a 
piece of guidance which has then been fed into English planning in some way, um, which is essentially saying that you shouldn't be allowed to extend a house. This is literally like a feature of like uh, of English planning guidance now. You shouldn't be allowed to extend a house by more than its uh, half its original area. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's sort of a series of little drawings which uh, sort of explain why this is so. Um, you know someone who did? Who? It, could that be Washington? Oh, yes. Jefferson? Jefferson, Madison. Uh, maybe. Madison? Yeah. Did, they, did they do exactly this? Yeah. Yeah, but they were great men. That's a different... The rules are different for them. What about the Sun King? Yes. Did he extend by more than 50% of the ground area? I think he did, yeah. Yeah, I think he did, but the, he was <laughs> the state, so I think that planning guidance doesn't... Or doesn't apply to him. Yeah. This is like the real downside of the kind of omnium gatherum scrapbook approach is like, this is a pure piece of like conservative heritage brain sort of planning paranoia. Like we've got to stop people extending too much because the nice cottages won't look nice anymore. And, um, you know, he has another bit, he, like he starts quoting Leon Creer on the preservation of the countryside and that kind of thing at a certain point. And it's like, make your mind up because if what you love, if what you love is like, garages in Palo Alto and if what you think is the kind of like engine of human flourishing is the ability to like muck around in <coughs> big cheap exurban spaces then you can't have like a super restrictive planning policy that's yeah. not that's not the way <laughs> this diagram work. is literally like, the opposite of what it which is that you shouldn't be able make to take any... old buildings yeah. and extend them yeah it's, it's so it's so incoherent <laughs> It just doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, I think that, yeah, again, that the TV show, he kind of reigns stuff have, in a bit, but like... You could have that, you know, the like, this thing is good, this thing is bad meme. Yeah. It's like, this thing is bad. Yeah. And then the same thing is good. Yeah, that is good. A succession of people have adapted it. Yeah. This stupid little cottage, which no one could live in in any kind of dignity, well, has turned you know, into I, a nice big house with up, a garage. I grew up partly in a village, and the little house lived in a granny opposite used to yeah. be six houses and there are people still alive who lived in that yeah and they had one tap between them <laughs> and one of the houses had 13 people living in it and yeah. it was probably i don't know the whole house it was probably like 15 square meters downstairs 15 square meters upstairs it had yeah. 13 people living in it <coughs> and it was a little cute cottage like that yeah uh living in in this is like in the 50s in yeah. absolute poverty yeah and the idea that you shouldn't be able to adjust that yeah is ridiculous yeah no, it's madness. It's like, I feel like this book is really onto something very interesting, but the way that it engages with everything is so scatterbrained and superficial that it's like deeply aggravating. It's It feels so arrogant. Yeah. He hasn't done his homework. Yeah. Yeah. Which is irritating because addressing Actually, the topic is really interesting and potentially very important. And I've never felt that like someone has given me like really good general insights for this. And I think yeah. that's partly because it's a difficult subject. But I don't think he's really taken on any sort of systematic approach. He has taken on an approach of things I like, which are often yeah. things he has done, or things that people he likes have done, yeah. or nice places he's visited, <clears throat> like a McDonald's or the London Library or yeah. the Boston Athenaeum, yeah. or country houses in America and England. They're good. And then the like worst things I can find are bad. Yeah. Instead of like, okay, I'm gonna look at this chunk of the city over time. I know he's got all these examples, but he never really describes what's going on in them. Yeah. He just says this shop this shop has changed from being this shop to this shop to this shop. Which he sort of says a lot. Yeah. 
Uh, and there's various other bits. There's a whole. He has a whole like bit on uh, the difference between like scrape and anti-scrape in the 19th century. Um, yeah, that and, he's like, about them. and yeah. that's fine. That's true. Like, yeah. um, this is the diff. Like, if we need to explain it, it's the difference between it's the way like, he talks about it is also superficial. Yeah, but the difference is on one side you've got the pestilential renovators, yeah. like um, restoring things to their original state, or their yeah yeah, yeah. The, yeah square scarecrow's original state, yeah. or you can kind of leave them. Yeah, um, and the real answer is you have to make an artistic decision. Yeah, and sometimes getting rid of loads of stuff is the correct artistic decision. Yeah. Sometimes being radical can be very good. So here's the turn to maintenance, which is... Uh, this chapter is so bizarre. Maintenance, I would say, is like where... There's a bit on vernacular, which I think we might skip entirely. Uh, yeah. It's basically Christopher Alexander again. It's not It's uh, not particularly... The maintenance one's fun to talk about because he has some strange... Did you notice that he says you can't... Slate's okay to use, but if you if you leave it in the sun, it dissolves. Yeah. I don't know. Like, so maintenance is where the book <laughs> becomes be it true. becomes really wacky. Stuart Brand has like distinct opinions on. I think he fancies himself himself a bit of a handyman, and he has like distinct opinions on what uh, what's legitimate to build buildings out of. His general attitude to maintenance, oddly, he kind of talks about the romance of maintenance, um, and it seems. And he actually, at the moment, I think, is writing a book about maintenance, but. In this book, he is generally opposed to the existence of maintenance and views well, it as a kind of... Well, other times he thinks people are not doing enough of it. Yeah. Like, he has various diagrams which really feel like something out of a presentation where you're talking about how you're going to maximise profits with a yeah. graph, which, which is just a curve. Oh, right. Going yeah. up. He, yeah. has, he has a couple of curve going up, like line go up graphs. Yeah. But a lot of the aim is, ba is basically to avoid maintenance. Yeah, in the design of buildings. And he makes points, you know, um, it's good that if you can see if something's going wrong, so it's bad to clad a building in aluminium panels, but it's good to clad it in woods because when the wood rots and falls off, you can see it. If you tile in slate, the sun will make the slate dissolve. Yeah. Rot it. He says, UV rots slate. You also... So it's much better to, to have all your roofs made of stainless steel? Yes. But you also shouldn't... Well, you shouldn't use wood a lot of the time. I mean, I, I started with this one because it's so weird. The maintenance-free cottage, it's, 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 like a, it's a slightly nondescript kind of house in uh, the home counties somewhere. After he had coated the two most weatherly walls with a clear coat silicon seal and had one whole course of bricks near the ground damp-proofed by injecting silicone, the window frames are now only need a coat of paint every three years, and that's about it for exterior work. So this is a sort of uh, a brick house, uh, looks like uh, of the interwar period. Um, is that a thing, by the way? Like um, applying a clear silicone seal to a brick building? It doesn't sound like a good idea to me at all. Yeah, is it going to have damp problems? Yeah. Like building up behind the... Because the building is... Uh, that won't be a cavity wall, will it? Well, I can have a look, but I'd be very surprised if it is. No, it's definitely not. So it's a solid brick building. It is going to produce a lot of moisture on the inside. Some of that is going to go into the bricks, and it's then not going to be able to go out, out to no. the outside. So I would say that sounds to me like that would make the building fall down, actually, over time. Also, saying that all you have to do to the windows of a building is paint them every three years is not what I would describe as low maintenance. 
all you have to do is maintain the roof and paint the windows every three years. Doesn't seem like a really convincing case for a no-maintenance house. That's just what you have to do to everything. I mean, some of it makes sense. There's a bit in praise of pitched roofs, which I think are generally somewhat simpler to detail. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, normally we don't... You know why people in houses at least don't do flat roofs of pitch roofs is because you're not allowed to ha- get that high yeah. yeah you can fit in more with a flat one because yeah. of planning restrictions yeah that's why people have flat roofs uh, he says like both here and in the tv show that all flat roofs leak which is definitely not true actually not it's true. quite straightforward to detail one i mean you have to you have to maintain a pitched roof and you have to maintain a flat roof yeah uh you can do a flat roof that will be fine for like 50 years no problem yeah. Well, I'm not sure whether you could do that in the 90s. Could you do those fiberglass ones in the... I think they were just coming... They were yeah. coming out in the... Both the fiberglass and the EDPM rubber ones were coming out. Um, I mean, bitumous felt ones are not great. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, if you wanted to, you could have done it in metal. But also tile roofs you have to redo every 50 years. Yeah. Uh, 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 on the outside, really. I mean, often less than that. Yeah. And they require maintenance. And you can only see if they're, where they're leaking if you haven't had an attic conversion. Yeah. Or if you haven't got any insulation on the roof. Yeah. So I will, the, the, the kind of ideal case is that you've got uh, a ceiling insulated and then an uninsulated attic space. Yeah. Yeah, so he makes the argument that in a pitched roof you can see where the water's coming in, which you can, but only if the roof cavity is unheated, which is very unusual in a modern house because you would normally have the insulation between the roof joists oh he loves that college he actually puts on did you like the accent he puts on he puts on oh, a yokel no, accent when he I talks know, about yeah. the foresters this is so cringy that um <laughs> it's because he really there's something he really likes and it is poshos yeah so this is a story this is an apocryphal story about new college uh Great Hall, which uh, had its beams replaced in the mid-19th century. And it's a story which is told by Gregory Bateson in a lecture, which is also on YouTube, you can see. And Bateson was uh, an Englishman, but I think he was doing this to an audience of Americans, and uh, I think he was kind did of... He, did he think they were gullible? He thought he knew that they would like it, I think. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and that the story is like that... The big oak beams were rebuilt with oak from the New College lands, and the story was that those oaks had been specially planted in the Middle Ages and had been kind of preserved by generations of clever um, woodsmen. Cunning folksy. Yeah. Who, yes, the tradition handed down from father to son. Maybe we should move Amongst ma- the forelock-tugging yokels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe we could drop a bit of the audio in. My friend Gregory Bateson used to tell the story of the oak beams of New College, Oxford. This is how it went. New College was founded in the late 14th century. It had, like other colleges at Oxford, a great dining hall with oak beams across the top. A century ago, some busy entomologist poked at the beams and discovered that they were full of beetles. This was reported to the College Council, who met in some dismay, because where would they find beams of that caliber nowadays? One of the junior fellows stuck his neck out and suggested there might be some oak on the college lands. So they called in the college forester, who of course had not been near the college for years, and asked him about oak. And he pulled his forelock and said, well, sirs, we was wondering when you'd be asking. On further inquiry, it was discovered that when the college was founded, a grove of oaks had been planted 
to replace the beams in the college hall when they became beetly, because oak beams always become beetly in the end. This plan had been passed down from one forester to the next for 500 years. You don't cut them oaks, them's for the college hall. A nice story. That's the way to run a culture. In both versions is just incredibly cringy and <laughs> it's kind of and also I mean, as well specious. as self-evidently yeah made up just nonsensical i mean the thing with oxford colleges is they have loads of land and if you have loads of prime farmland in certain bits of england they're full of oaks they're all over the place yeah i mean like the it idea is that you it is unusual it. to get it is quite hard to get ones which have got very tall straight oaks because yeah. you have to grow them in a forest rather yeah. than singly. Also, they would have had to have had the oaks for 500, grow for 500 years, which is way too long. Yeah. It should be like 200 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in the story. Yeah, yeah no, the hall has lasted much too long, though you don't want your oaks to be that long because they'd all be rotten in the middle. Yeah. yeah. That's not the length of time that you need for prime. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no... I mean, oh yeah, and he does a little wink and says, "Oh, that's that's the way to build a culture or whatever." Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. Like, you know, I know. Civilization thrives when old men plant trees they will never sit under. I know. Oh. Pablum. Um, tell us more about the time you met the Duchess of Devonshire. <laughs> please tell us. Oh, please. Yeah. How much more of this can we do? You can t we can talk about his consultancy. There's more of the same. Yeah, so th so the, the book takes like an interesting turn, like nearly at the end, with what he calls the scenario buffered building, which is... Uh, well, yes, what is his big solution, Luke? It is scenario planning, which coincidentally he has a business in, um, <laughs> in providing. He's selling this, yeah. In, uh, uh, or at least did, did at the time, which is called... It has the funniest name. It's called like... Global business global solutions, international or like business, <laughs> global yes. international business solutions, um, and it's uh, yeah, essentially scenario planning. It's kind of like the idea is when you design the building, you should think about not only the future that you're planning for, but can you also roadmap a bunch of other things that could happen and have uh, like a, the building somehow be equipped for those. You could indeed do this, and. I think lots of buildings already are sort of equipped for different possibilities in a very yeah. banal way. Lots of houses, not unlike the one that's immediately behind us, are built so that it's relatively straightforward to move around the walls which enclose the rooms. Yeah, and I can tell you another way that the most common developer way in which you yeah. plan for the future, you plan to sell the building. Yeah, as soon as possible. Well, that, yeah. And that rather causes the problem. The yeah. problem is not caused by people think, we are going to own this building for 100 years. Yeah. Um, how can we best like, adapt to the future things that will come up in 100 years? Yeah. No. You sell out. You sell out, or yeah. you are planning to redevelop it after a certain period of time, or you really need to think about, if you're a capitalist enterprise, you need to think about a reasonable time which you can return capital yeah. that's got to be your horizon like yeah people are investing over this amount of time like we are going to depreciate uh, future earnings yeah i, I mean, don't think people are, like completely way off in their approaches it's just that the incentives are different well he sort of has the idea that the the um all the glass-walled skyscrapers uh ran into trouble because of the oil shock and the increased cost of energy um in but the late all 70s the skyscrapers now are built like that 
they're still built like that, yeah. So that can't have been completely true. But he kind of thinks, well, maybe when people were designing them, they should have thought through what are some things that could happen. Maybe energy will get more expensive. Oh. And then... I wonder what you do then. Do you think you change the plant? Uh, yeah, I get, I'm... Do you think you get an M&E engineer in? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, then your problems are just beginning. Um, but maybe everyone's <laughs> doing that at the same time. Maybe you yeah. should do that a bit, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think people do, to some extent, do this. Like, um, and you I should, think you should it, be thinking, I think yeah, I mean, I think it's a reasonable thing. I just think that, uh, I don't think that the reason that you have failures of this are because people aren't able to think about how to make the building more adaptable. I think where it's not adaptable is because people have not had the incentive to make it adaptable. The people who are paying the bills don't have the incentive to make it, it adaptable, which is a shame. I mean, it's nice to make things more adaptable. Yeah. Well, sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's quite practical to have things quick. Like, yeah. uh, the reason that his beloved shipping containers are sometimes used is because you can whack yeah. them onto site while you're waiting for the land value to go up or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, and they're not adaptable, actually, at yeah. all. Uh, and then you can just... It's very easy to take them away afterwards. Yeah. There's a very funny moment in the book where he has these, like, on-site porter cabins and they're building a building behind it and he's like oh why do they build the building why don't they just have these porter cabins forever instead of having a train station yeah. or living in or like working in a cool office building you could work in a porter cabin flying in the sky in scaffolding but then i also kind of think like why do you hate richard rogers yeah this is such I a mean, high this tech is exactly this is such a high tech vibe yeah. like you should be friends <laughs> This is a real, it's a real like. It's funny that. Th yeah. That solution feels like he's talking about it 20 years too late. This was like. Yeah. This uh, was a thing people were into in late the late 70s. Yeah. So they really, people were doing yeah. these. Like, except that they would make them out of like, out of like crinkly bronze to kind yeah. of. Like, it was definitely a yeah. zeitgeisty thing. Yeah. Probably it's like a zeitgeisty thing when he was doing the whole Earth catalogue or something and he's kept it in the back of his mind. Yeah. I feel like we've probably bashed it enough, but there was a moment which um, this this I thought was my. This like, is this is a real. <laughs> Let me. I this is an apples to apples <laughs> comparison. I've got, if ever I, I've had one. I've got to read it out. Let me describe the two things, and then we can. There are two images which are being compared. Uh, yeah. One is um, this is a this is a definite comparison of something is good and something is bad. It's a classic view of it's Boulay's monumental library. I think, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, no, sorry, it's the Metropolitan Cathedral um, by Boulay. Yeah, okay. Which is a piece of paper architecture. It's a, he was a revolutionary architect who built very little, maybe possibly nothing at all, and it's this, like, unbelievably vast neoclassical design with, like, enormous columns and then in, in a huge barrel vault. And uh, tiny little people at the bottom. And tiny little people. And then there is a photograph of, underwater photograph of a mother and a baby, and the mother is sort of um, stroking the baby and the baby and is looking rather blissfully into and it's an advertisement <laughs> for British Gas <laughs> yeah I know and the, the credit is Water Baby director Mark Portelli from a TV commercial for British Gas PLC which is okay, like okay <laughs> so which one of these is good architecture and which one of these uh, is bad architecture uh, two visions of architecture Boulet, brackets left, wanted people awed, tiny and powerless before the magnificence of the architect's achievement. The mother on the right has a no, different... It should be British Gas PLC. <laughs> the mother on the right, working for an employee of British Gas PLC, has a different attitude about her creation. A building is not something you finish. A building is something you start. Well... 
<laughs> Jiminy Cricket, where is he coming from with this? This is, a, I mean, this is not even like a shower thought. Or like, I mean, famously, Stuart Brand had like this big like acid vision where he was like, we need NASA to take a photo of the Earth and share it with everyone. And it's going to transform everyone's consciousness. Yeah. But this is not even like an acid vision. What is this? This is just, is beyond banal. It's like... Firstly, neither of these are real proposals for buildings. No. Secondly, one of them They're both. is not a proposal for buildings because it's a photograph of a baby swimming. <laughs> a swimming baby. Yeah. <laughs> and they're both pieces of rhetoric. But one of them is a rhetoric, which is you should buy gas from yeah. British Gas. What I think is like wholly disingenuous about this is that he allows that one of them, the baby photo, is a metaphor. But he totally disallows that the Boulay scheme can be, can be meant as anything other than a completely literal architectural proposal about the way that everything should be. But you know why? It's because people are good. Mm. Architects who are not people Ruin are bad. everything. Yeah. We'll put it up on the Insta. It is extremely silly. I mean, there's lots more in there. You could go on and on and on. But I think that... Um, it's irritating because like there were bits when at the beginning when he was like looking so there was uh, early on I like opened the book and in fact Luke asked is this something we could do uh, episode about yeah and he lent me the book and I looked at it and I saw a picture of like people in a room like a whole series of people in a room and the room over time there yeah. was a series of these like photographic series. And I thought, oh, that looks cool. He must have like looked at how the room was being used in some way and thought about occupation. And I suppose in a way he sort of does. And it's not that we've been bashing it loads because he says a load of stupid stuff and yeah. like has respect for some really stupid authority. He uses ridiculous examples. Yeah. But that's not to say that the points aren't relevant and some of the things he says are true. And a lot of the, th and the things that he likes, including like the picture of the baby swimming underwater, gen yeah. generally are quite charming. I'm also, also in favour of babies swimming underwater. It's just that, like, it's just that he needs to do a little bit more work and like synthesise it. He hasn't done enough work for this to be a real work of scholarship or something that's really going to like it doesn't tell you help it doesn't, us it doesn't design tell you buildings any. better yeah it, like he does notionally have some proposals but they're not really useful like the question of how you design buildings for flexibility or really usability i think is really interesting and there are lots of kind of contemporary and other examples of how you do this kind of thing some of the things are, some of the ideas are like, I mean, in his idea, all the outside of a building does is weatherproofing and providing visuals. But obviously, today, the thermal envelope is really the thing which people are particularly focused on. Like, people want buildings to be extremely thermally performant, and predominantly that happens just under the skin. Uh, you know, there are different ways you can do it. but um, And that makes it all a bit more complicated. But, like, otherwise, I think that the sort of six shearing layers are... I could, I can see that definitely being, like, a, a kind of helpful little heuristic for how to think about... how to think about the separability of these different things. But... Maybe, but I'm not actually sure, like, it is fundamentally important that, like 
that you can rearrange the surface. For example, you could rearrange the space organization without rearranging the services. I People don't generally want to do that, do they? Like, is it really important that the skin is separable from the structure? No, and actually, lots of the buildings that he likes, th that's not the case. They, you know, they're structural brick buildings. Or he doesn't uh, even like it when you've got cavity walls. Mm. I can see arguments for both sides of it. Like, there's a reason we do it. We're in a very rainy country here. The way we build inside requires the inside to be dry, whereas historically that was an impossibility. So yeah. you could you just did things differently. But people care about like it not being the ambient temperature indoors more than they used to <laughs> yes. because they can do something about it now. Yeah. Um, also, he has no respect for the idea that architects should actually, as part of their job, consider how the building looks on the outside mm. and, in fact, how the building looks on the inside. Mm. The only people he respects yeah. who put prestige, like who um, work on that, it's only really acceptable to him if it is done by as a kind of work of naive art. It's never respectable or acceptable for him to consider how a building looks if it is done by an architect. Yeah. Which is only acceptable if it is done by someone else. For example, an artist yeah. or um, a property developer. Some people do want a speculator. The inside of their building to be designed for them. And actually, it does matter. I am willing to put a case that it is it's much better if we can all live in a place with a varied and exciting, visually exciting uh, environment so that we can be surrounded by a certain amount of beauty as opposed to ugliness. Mm. That's better, yeah. And I think that is part of what people want. Yeah. Like, that's not a dirty word. There's a bit in um, uh, in the TV show where Christopher Alexander says that the rise of people employing interior designers is because they've been psychically brutalised by architects into believing that they can't design their homes for themselves. This is proper Scientology. <laughs> 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 I don't think that that is psychologically plausible, actually. If you just think of anyone you've talked to ever, I don't think people are lacking in confidence about how to design their own homes. And I don't think that people who employ interior designers are doing it because they've been hollowed out by the mental warfare <laughs> of uh, it's, I mean, it's, it, it is verging on... But this isn't really him. It's Christopher Alexander, who, who at times verges on... Yeah like mad conspiracy yeah um yeah. philosophy that's it i mean the 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 review of the book is for me it has a lot of promise the initial like three chapters if they were worked into could be a really interesting book i think um and the rest of it is extremely scattered and uh a lot of it is kind of paraphrasing people that we've already featured on the show and who I strongly disagree with on a lot of things. And um, all people who like, I don't think any of the people we've covered like don't make observations that something good is good or something bad is like those yeah. observations. It's actually easier to say that than like why. Yeah. Um, and I think. Um, if you want to kind of like have a thing as how in the title of the book yeah and he doesn't really says how say how they learn yeah he doesn't say how they learn no 
No, that would be a good book, though. It doesn't say... This isn't a book about how buildings learn. No. Well, I think that's enough. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a strange one, this one. It was interesting going through it. Yeah. I would probably... I'd watch the TV show. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd watch the TV show. It um, it does cut out like significant chunks of the book, but the bits of the book that it cuts out are kind of pretty scrappy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the TV show definitely refines the book down to bits which are a bit more interesting, uh, like the bits which I think are more meaningfully connected with the the kind of premise. Yeah. Like, something we didn't say in the episode, which we said, is that this very, like, this is an obvious point, but I don't think we said it. This belongs to a thought world of a group like of a group of people which is spanning between the new urbanism people and the reactionary people i would say that like squarely belongs in this yeah but like viewed from silicon valley like yeah yeah that kind of like um, valley mindset like yeah. i thought it might have been a book which like involved a certain amount of like longitudinal study and i thought it might be something a bit like actually the architecture of the city like yeah. Rossi, which is a kind of slightly kooky, erudite take on how cities learn. Yeah. What happens to them after they're founded. And it's not like that. It actually is an assemblage <coughs> of pieces of kind of opinion from Christopher Alexander, like these, these various people, Jane Jacobs and a few others, Brian Eno, <laughs> the Duchess of Devonshire, uh, Duffy. Yeah. So yeah. I guess those are probably the big ones. Uh, a little bit from Vincent Scully. He's okay. Yeah. For some reason. Mixed with things that Stuart Brand has seen and is interested in. I guess the architecture of the city is kind of things that Rossi has seen and is interested in. But he does then, like, try to produce a kind of theoretical framework of how they work. Yeah. And that framework is bonkers. It doesn't really... Yeah make any sense but it <coughs> is does it does show that like he's like actually mentally interrogating it and then yeah. you can kind of respond to that yeah i don't know how you would really put this book to work in the end it does try to offer some principles but they are so sort of arbitrary and diffuse they get down to like you should use metal studs instead of wood and this kind of thing in the maintenance chapter he offers lots of advice but the advice is not really sensible you should yeah. ignore it some of it is downright wrong yeah like factually wrong yeah yes not a building manual it is literally getting too dark to see okay we should, <laughs> <laughs> we should call it to a halt remember um you can find links to all of the important things supporting the show on our website which is about buildingsandcities.org we'll do a bonus yeah and we'll be back with something else very soon thanks a lot for listening Bye-bye. Night-night.